Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another conversation in the interview series. My guest today has left such a huge mark on my life as a member of the groundbreaking, long-standing, uber-influential group, The Roots. As a young music fan growing up in Auckland, New Zealand, entirely dedicated to the concept of rap music being two turntables and some microphones, the idea of a live band making hip-hop music to me was just like, I don't know how that works. And then along came The Roots and took what Stetsasonic started to a whole other level. The fact they came from Philadelphia was intoxicating. They told different types of stories from different locations and always with the most impeccable taste. And right at the very back, driving this whole operation was the one and only Quest Love. I own every album. I've lost count how many times I've seen them live. But what I didn't realize was that Quest Love was steady building up his inspiration bank to move into other areas. In recent times, he's become a published author, creator of a brilliant podcast, and developer and director of documentary films. And that's why we're here today to talk about his incredible documentary, Summer of Soul. I'd been told by those who had seen it straight out the gate how emotional and powerful this documentary was, but nothing could prepare me, not just for the amazing performances that have been sitting on a shelf and archive for far too long, but the way that Questlove weaved this narrative together to tell an all more important and deeper story than just amazing artists on a stage performing for fans. The only person who could direct this film joins us right now on the interview series, the remarkable one and only quest love you know there are moments in music if you're a real music fan where you know you sometimes worry that you've seen it all you felt it all and and then you know you get struck by lightning and there's a moment when your emotions far overshadow anything that's cerebral or anything that comes from the head it just comes from the heart and you find yourself just in uncontrollable fits of tears and that happened to me watching your movie multiple times bro man thank you Multiple times. I appreciate that. I mean, and in the most unexpected ways, like not even just the emotional points, Quest Love, where the narrative connects from the past to the present moment and the music is the perfect stitch. But that moment when Sly and the Family Stone go from tuning up to landing this song was one of the most amazing moments of chemistry I've ever seen. You know, you know what's weird about that scene? My first draft of that movie was like three hours and 30 minutes. I had to drop a lot of the stuff you know, the good stuff out of the film. And I begged, 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 begged. Like, I got to keep it and sing a simple song. They're like, but you got two other Sly and the Family Stone songs. I was like, no, man, like, you don't get it. Like, there's a very important drum break that I have to include in there. People will kill me. 100%. That moment yeah. when the horns <laughs> and the drum break, which has been used by... Only classics, by the way. Only classics. Like, you could never listen to Get the F*** Out of Dodge the same way again if you had turned your back on that moment. See, I love that you took it back to an important V-side of Public Enemy's career. That That's how I know you're a real head, you know. Yeah, it's just like, to me, that drum break was so important. And there's a lot of moments like that. Like, again, my first draft was like three hours and 30 minutes. So to take away... 90 minutes of like content was killing me but I kept that drum break in there as hard as I could no so. you had to you had to because to your point it's an incredibly important moment in the movie where I feel that expressionism starts to really change and it goes from just being like the music is incredible, gifted, natural, talent, influential, buttoned up, professional, perfect chore- you know, choreographed to just pure expression like absolute yeah. unapologetic art i'm glad you saw that even in choosing the songs like i'll give you an example with stevie wonder 
you know, it's 1969. He did the hits. He did My Sharia Moore. He did, you know, like just uptight. He did like all the the Stevie Wonder hits. But for me, there's just a moment where you see him go into the zone when he's doing Shooby Doo Da Day. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, it's like a, a eight minute song, and I really wanted people to see that more than just Stevie Wonder being a man with hits, that he was also like a, a passionate artist in the zone. There's just that that 40 seconds where he's just clearly enamored by the music and, and you see him go to this magical place. And I felt like that was really important to show that these were not only people using their voice for uh, activist purpose, but also that these people that had a passion for their art. And that's what I want people to learn from this. That's the most exciting and important part of the chemistry. And that's not to detract from the important of the message, uh, message of this movie. This movie is to be watched because of the historical and cultural context within which you beautifully weave what was and what is. And the turning point, the importance of 1969 and the journey that society and culture and our species has been on since, mm-hmm. right? That tug of war ever since started and to some degree changed its tact in 1969. You beautifully capture that, but you never do so at the sacrifice of the enjoyment of music. Yeah, it's, it's you know, the thing is, is that um, in telling this story, first of all, I'd never heard of the story. And I think if people, you know, sort of know the name Questlove, uh, you, you would like to think that my music nerdum is well-known, uh, at least for the, like the past three decades. I mean, I consider you to be modern music's chief historical custodian. I, I would like to think that I, I, I could at least apply for the job. So, you know, imagine my embarrassment where these two guys are telling me that this thing happened and I didn't believe them because I couldn't Google it. Like, I Google it and it's not here. And that's the thing. Like, how dangerous is it that... You can wipe it away. Yeah, yeah the fact that, you know, like... It, well, it's one you know, thing to ignore it. It's another thing to bury it, right? Yeah, and it's... The thing is, is that even... I know oftentimes when we talk about like black erasure and racism, people often think that it's a thing where it's like a a sort of like a a mob, you know, mob that's like literally like burning history. But in this case, you know, it was was a situation where it was just like a casual, eh, it's not a big deal, which is even just as dangerous. Like imagine like all the beautiful things that have could have changed lives because, you know, what people don't know is that, Woodstock happens 10 days later, and suddenly that becomes, that defines a generation. Like when you think of the 60s and you think of American Summer of Love and the music that came out, chances are like Woodstock is in your first five words that comes out of your mouth. Mm. And I'm just saying that this was just as beautiful, just as magical, and really never got that chance. Actually got rejected literally by everybody as not important enough to capture the beautiful thing about it, though, is that when I finished this film, I've gotten so many emails and DMs from like other people, from like institutions, colleges, telling me, "Hey, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I got nine hours of blah 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 live in New York at da 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 this festival. I don't, you might want to do something with it." Like suddenly, there's like ten other films just like it that have been sitting collecting dust in like these institutions and museums so you know why uh, though you know why because you didn't and you don't ever panda to us you never have with the roots all right man mate 
warning, classic Zane Lowe piss, piss in pocket moment coming up right here. Watch out. <laughs> Quest, Quest Love head about to blow up. The roots never panned it, ever. Your journey has been one of pure process, pure mm-hmm. result, pure passion, right? Never, ever came out and rushed it. It was like, it was what it was when it was. And you'll, you'll, you'll get us one way or the other. You will figure it out because we're not going anywhere and you're going to keep doing great shit. And this yeah, movie is yeah. a reflection of that because you gave as much airtime to the artists that most people have never heard of as you did to Nina Simone. And it's like, you didn't play for the right, you didn't play for the front row. You played for the whole stadium with this film. I played for the culture. Absolutely. Well, because there's, there's things I wanted to know. Like for starters, you know, 69 was a, was a transition year for Black America and for America in general. So there's the aftermath of losing Martin Luther King, losing Malcolm X, losing the Kennedy brothers. Um, basically, all of, the, all of the participants that made strides in making sure that African-Americans had human rights. And can I add something to that real quick? I'd never seen, just quickly, because I, I, I'd never seen it, the through line presented so powerfully, impactfully as you did in your film, the way that yeah. one person loses their life, here's somebody to break the news. That person loses and their that life. that person loses their here's life. Here's someone to try to calm people down. That person gets taken out and here's someone to try to calm people down. And then they take that person out as well. And so yeah. it just makes you realize at that moment in time, the system was just bloodlust and ferocious and just like a wild animal that just couldn't, that just was like, I'm going to just destroy everything in my path until you get it. Yeah, it left it left a whole generation of people without hope Yeah. Uh, by the time Martin Luther King dies. You know, when Kennedy dies and Malcolm X talks about that, then Malcolm X dies and then uh, Martin Luther King talks about that, then King dies and then Bobby Kennedy talks about that, and then Bobby Kennedy dies it's and then just, you're just like... What? It's, it's over. And the thing is, is that, you know, this is why that concert was allowed to happen to keep people from rioting. You know, this is and this is built up not only 15 years of that, but just like our whole 400 year existence in America resulted just in riots. So one, it was about why this concert was thrown. And it's also about a new generation, a younger generation, similar to like, you know, like we're older hip hop heads. There's our kids and people that are younger that you know, might not be as passionate about Wu-Tang and Public Enemy. And we're not as passionate about Migos or, you know, like someone younger. So there's a new generation trying to figure their way out in the world. But then there's also just general things I wanted to know about being a performer, like what it what it means to use your voice. Mm. You know, a lot of those acts, this is the first time that they're playing in front of 80,000 people, mm. you know, for... For a guy like Stevie Wonder, yes, he came from the Motown stable, so Motown would travel like a, a traveling circus and do theaters. But for a lot of those acts, they're used to only doing like at the most maybe a thousand people in a rundown barn. Well, there's also a really powerful moment where the Fifth Dimension yeah. talk openly about the fact that they were having success on the pop charts, but felt that they needed an opportunity to present their music to the black audience. Yeah. And, you know, I, I felt it was important in America. Oftentimes, uh, black professionals have this thing about a term called code switching, which is, you know, when you're at the job, you sort of have to 
straighten up and fly right. You know, this is why Motown often sent their artists to uh, charm school, you know, teach them how to order tea, how to bow for the queen, how to, you know, like yeah. cross your T's and dot your I's. Assimilate. And, and enunciate yeah. those things. Yeah. When I had Billy Davis uh, Jr. Marilyn McCoo watch this footage, I had commented to them like, yo, I don't think I've ever, I never knew you guys knew how to dance. <laughs> yeah. Because that's how sophisticated they were. And, you know, she basically broke down to me that this this was a really important show for them because for the first time they were able to relate to people that looked like they did. Mm. You know, the, those tears that sort of emanated was the result of the exhaustion of always having to be on guard, of not, you know, we couldn't dance on the Ed Sullivan show like that. We couldn't dance at the Copa. And equally, if not more importantly, they felt like the audience related to them. And that's the thing. Yes. That was a beautiful moment. And I, you know, when a lot of, a lot of the heart of the film, you know, when people get emotional and start crying and seeing these things, I, I really didn't expect that at all because, you know, in the very beginning, I knew this was my chance to correct history, but when we started doing the interviews and people started watching the footage, mm. I realized that this is also really an opportunity to give people their history back. Like the the first guy I interviewed, uh, Musa Jackson, mm-hmm. you know, this is the first memory he ever had in life. And for a lot of those people that were watching the festival for the first time in 50 years, they had no proof that it happened. So a lot of people just thought they were lying. There was never Stevie Wonder and... I would have heard about it. Mm-hmm. I could I could have Googled it, mm-hmm. you know. And so just the relief factor of finally I have proof that I was there. No one ever believed me. Like that was the common denominator of everybody. And so, yeah, it brought them to tears. I, I never personally thought that it was that level, but it goes to show you that it is that level. It's, you know, very deep responsibility taking on a project of this nature. Like any documentary in particular that focuses on, you know, uh, history or events or lives or legacy has to be done so with the ultimate respect. Now, when you add in the fact that you're sitting there trying to put together a narrative, you know, context around an event that no one knows about, that featured real people who are still alive, Mm -hmm. that has such a deep narrative that, that is still being experienced today. And the struggle continues and the conversations continue and everything keeps moving. So right. I wonder whether or not there were moments, given that you've taken on a lot of things in your life, you're a brilliantly, successfully curious human, that this maybe felt like it was at times even overwhelming for you, even just on an emotional level of feeling the responsibility of delivering for everyone, not just you and the roots and Jimmy. So here's the weird thing. The weird thing is that um, I pretty much considered March 16th you know, the universal day that the the world is shut down. That was a really an important shooting day for us. And when the world shut down, we just, I pretty much thought this film was over. Like, oh, well, that's it. No more. You know, after a week of, well, is it the end of the world? What happens? And, mm. you know, we decided to, to push through and finish this thing. And a weird thing happens. Before the pandemic, I already know that, people my parents' age and maybe my age that are into breakbeats and these artists or whatever, like, we're going to peep this film and see what's up. But um, for the longest, I was just like, I don't think I have anything in this film that's really going to speak to anyone 
kind of born after 1985, like yeah. second half millennials and, and Gen Z. And the only thing I could come up with was the fact that Drake's uncle is Sly's bass player. Drake's father's brother, uh, Larry Graham, is Sly and the Family Stone's bass player. So I was just like, that's that would have been- That's your social media part. strategy? <laughs> yeah, well, that would have been the pandering thing. Like, oh, maybe we can talk to Drake about his uncle playing bass or something. <laughs> and But the thing is, is that I realized as we were editing in 2020 that suddenly you couldn't tell the difference between our documentary and what was happening in real life. Yeah, Just the panic of, are we going to make it? And suddenly- I became one of those artists on stage. Like, do you know how stressful it is to try to be creative in a time of uncertainty? You know, you're stepping outside and you don't know if you're going to live or die. You're worried about if your mom's going to be okay standing in line at the supermarket. And then you turn up the notch an extra, you know, once April comes and the whole George Floyd situation happens and the protests that's even scary. It's like you still got to be creative in a creative headspace to make this movie. But then like your everyday life is just as stressful mm -hmm. as what you're documenting. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it, there was a synergy that really just directed the direction of this film in a way that I didn't plan on at all. So mm -hmm. I'll say that a lot of this film, the bomb squad level of, of editing public enemy reference, um, suddenly makes more sense and we do even more of it to an intense level. So yeah, what was before March 16th of 2020 was going to be just a nice little normal concert film neatly wrapped in a, you know, in a bow gifted mm. and suddenly became a, a project of urgency. I'm so glad you talked about the urgency of this film. Um, it's very immediate to anyone who's a fan of music, in particular hip-hop music, over the course of its amazing, amazing existence. Yeah. That um, the idea of, of pulling things together, the roughness, you know, the ruggedness mm -hmm. is a big part of what makes it so special, the rough edges, you know, and they exist today yeah. too. It's just that kids are doing beats in 20 minutes with trap packs and like sound packs. Now it's still rough as shit. You know, those yeah. 808s are disgusting. It's the same thing. It's just different, mm -hmm. right? This modern version of it. Still about the expression rather than the perfection. And um, you leaned into that in such a big way in the beginning, like within two minutes of Stevie's performance and you start to usher in that what you're going to see, but, all within this framework of Stevie's performance. Like you, it was like a DJ set and a bomb and the bomb squad reference is beautiful too. Cause that's the roughness of it, the ruggedness, the unexpectedness. Yeah. They're like, Oh, what's that? Whoa, you're smacking me. You know, it's weird. I think every creative, especially in music, uh, in terms of being a musician or maybe as a director, they often have a North star. And my North star was in the middle of June I get a summer job working um, at a fast food restaurant and I would walk to work for 14 blocks. And my second day on the job is the Tuesday that um, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. It's released by public enemy. Wow. That album was such a game changer on so many uh. levels. Most importantly, um, one, it made my dad's very boring record collection come to life. Because without that record, then suddenly I'm like, wait a minute. I think, isn't that Dad's James Brown song? Isn't that Sly and the Family Stone? Yeah. Isn't that David Bowie? Yeah. Isn't that Mandrill? Yeah. Isn't that Funkadelic? Yeah. Like suddenly their level of sampling brings to life my dad's like 3,000 
plus record collection, not to mention just the the, the Jackson Pollock-esque way that they just threw colors on, on a palette and made sense of it later. That never left me. So I'll say, like, almost with every Roots album I've done, Tariq and I are like, okay, this is going to be our Public Enemy album. <laughs> you don't sample anything. That's the irony. You guys don't sample shit. <laughs> But that's the thing. That's the thing. No, but the thing is, is like, like it starts off with that energy. Like, yeah. yo, man, because everyone wants to make an homage to like the album that influenced them to get in the music. You know, it never winds up being that way. Like for a week, it's that way. And then we go back to the roots default. Yeah. But um, what's ironic is that decades, like 17 albums of like, all right, this is our public enemy project. <laughs> and it never winds up that way. This is the one time where I did something creative where I definitely was not planning on that level of cut and paste mania. And it winds up being that. Like when we saw the first draft, uh, my producer, Joseph uh, Patel, was like, yo, man, I think this is the Public Enemy album that you always dreamed of making but never got a chance to do. And that's when I realized. Because the sounds of the performances, you know, there's this moment in – War on 33 and a third, because I think that Fear of a Black Planet is like that chemistry, that sound at its best. Like, I think that's the moment when it all comes together because- Jesus have, Christ, yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like that is the end of the world. I mean, that is the end of the world. Like when <laughs> exactly. War on 33 comes in and it's a chainsaw and you think that's hard enough and then it goes into this whole kind of like, you know, boom, boom. Can stand this boom, boom. Right, right. Can stand this boom, boom. And then, if that's not enough, they put a kick drum in and they just go. But just like, and then it just drops back in with the chainsaw and the whole thing's crazy. And that moment with that whole boom, boom, can stand this, that, that is the whole sound of the soundtrack. This electrifying live soul funk, which at its time, and today sounds more punk rock and more rock and roll than any exactly. band with f- pink flying V's and a f- mm-hmm. 165 track recording studio. It is rock and roll. It is. To be 16, 17, and 18 years old when that's your soundtrack. You know, I was there for all that stuff. For The Bomb Squad to me has nine definitive moments of albums that define them from 87 I consider the last, the swan song of the Bomb Squad is the uh, the first Young Black Teenagers record and the first uh, Son of Berserk album. Very good shout. For that to influence me creatively and really just never having the opportunity to do that. On top of that, my, my editor, Josh, is just like, he too was a Public Enemy fan. And, you know, the types of movies that he was editing, like he did 20 Feet from Stardom, like he does normal movies. He never had a project that even allowed himself to go there. To make mistakes, to make beautiful mistakes. Like that's the thing, the beautiful thing about that montage in the beginning is that it's not even about, and this is with the greatest respect to you and Josh, some mm-hmm. of the best moments, if you listen to those albums and you know that style of production, you know how things sit in the mix, that often they land themselves. And no amount of editing or experience or perfectionism is going to actually get that magic. That's just because that sound and that sound aren't perfectly suited. And that blurry edge is what makes it so fucking amazing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. To me, it, I just felt like, actually, I felt like we we couldn't go far enough, which is weird because... I wanted to take it down a thousand mm. 
because right now I'm working on the Sly and the Family Stone documentary. And in my mind, that's when I'm really going to bring out the big toys. But it's this is weird how it just organically happened. That's going to be interesting, though, that one, man, if we may, just for a couple of minutes, because as perfectly shown in this amazing film, Summer of Soul and the soundtrack that now accompanies with it. And by the way, the way you've got, I don't know if, if you did any additional or got someone to do any additional EQ work or production on those performances, but its sound is unbelievable. Can I tell you something? So when we get the footage out of the basement, it, the footage has been in the basement for 50 years, untouched. The first thing I wanted to do was get J- Jimmy Douglas involved. Jimmy Douglas, you know, for a lot of, lot of heads, he is the sound of Timbaland. Missy Elliott, but for sound of older heads, he was he was also Barry White. Dude, he he was there assisting on Led Zeppelin yep, records. Yep. Like he was just the house guy at Atlantic Records. He started when Classic he was 17. Behind years old. the scenes icon level for sure. Exactly. He's been engineering since the age of 17. Um, he also did Aretha Franklin's um Amazing Grace album. So to me, Jimmy's the only engineer. I used him for the the John Legend. Wake Up uh, album with The Roots and also for the Al Green album I produced. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the only engineer that I'd never had to micromanage. Like, I just sent him the sent him the reels and then he knows exactly what I want and I'm just like, I'm in love with it. So what's weird is that we gave him the reels and he enhanced it. But, and this is some, something only hip-hopers will get. There's something called demo-itis. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, man, because I actually do a lot of interviews with artists. That's pretty cross genre. Demo artists is a pretty common feeling. Yeah, well, yeah. And the thing is, is that even (laughs) though it was perfected, I kept it was the white elephant in the room where I was like, "Yo, it's lost. Is it me or did we did we just like the the flat rough mix a little better?" Yeah. And that's the weird thing. So what you're literally listening to, I don't know if the sound guy at the festival that day had the insight to just tweak it a little bit. Because normally when you do a live live recording of that, you're just supposed to leave it flat. Yeah. And then let let the engineer yeah. Uh, yeah. do some work on it at yeah, the end. Yeah, front of house but, mix. Super simple. Yeah, but he just, the, whoever was at the board just had the hand of God on him and, did, and just did a flat, perfect mix perfect. of which... That is all. Perfect. What you're listening to is essentially the rough mix. We we barely touched. I mean, we barely touched it. Getting back to that sly, because even just that performance, try a little dough, and she's so distorted and so upfront on the mic because it's the energy yeah. you can feel that the connection oh, she's Cynthia having Robinson. with that performance yeah, yeah, is yeah. unbelievable. And yet, that it's like a it elevates your listening experience to the degree where perfectionism isn't even a concept at that point. It's just all you want is the experience of what they're going through and to get as close to it as possible. It's a truly, truly amazing live recording. And fifteen mics—that's the thing I yeah. can't get over. Yeah. Is that the, the second that I saw this, I called the Roots engineer up and I was like, "Yo, how many outputs do we use per show?" And he's like, "Well, what period?" I was like, "Well." Okay, in the beginning, like, what were we doing? He's like, oh, in the beginning, uh, he's like, uh, uh, maybe 50, 50, uh, when I was doing analog, 50 tracks. I said, what do we do now? He's like, oh, now? Easily. You guys are about 97. I said, wait, we used 97? Wow. He's like, yeah, well, you know, I I mic the bottom snare and the top snare and snare number two and snare number three, and I put ambience over. And I was like, dude, 
how's this how's this concert fe- festival a 15 mic affair like the glass night and the pips are sharing one microphone i know can i have a crack at that yes because they're fucking gladys night and the pips and you could have literally <laughs> you could have had them do it into a toilet roll and it would have sounded unfucking believable at some point you got to give it up to the people in the level where they're at wizard sleeves level now wizard sleeves yeah, it, it it goes to show you the level of precision and professionalism. But like, there's probably my favorite drum moment is watching BB King's drummer during the second half of Every Day I Sing the Blues. Yeah. Like it's so breakbeat ready. It's so like, breakbeat. I never knew BB King even had a breakbeat era. I didn't even know that. Exactly. The fact that it's three microphones on that drum set. Yeah. Since the pandemic. You know, the Roots were world famous for like 200 shows a year. Like we've only been, maybe we've done like 30, but I really haven't been in a position where I can like really have fun at a sound check or whatever. But one of these days I'm going to figure out how did 15 microphones emanate so much magic texture wise. I got to figure that out. I have to. I know we're running out of time, man, which is, you know, I, I respect it. I also seriously disrespect it because I need three <laughs> hours to talk to you just just as a, like a moose bouche of because well, we've, we've never done this man, which is like for me, you know. I, I mean, know this is a dream come true, man. I, I finally made it. Oh, like, get I, the I hell out of here! This is the starter. <laughs> this is a starter pack. No, you know how much I love you, man. Um, you Thank know, you, man. I I don't know you well enough as well as I should. I feel because of how much I love you and and what you achieve and what you do. Well, we, you know, we're working on our our seventeenth record right now. Like it's it's been nine years, and Black Thought right now is doing genius levels of. He just basically wrote one of the greatest plays that it's it's mind blowing. Like he wrote everything, every song, every like I'm I'm just mind blown. Called Black No More. It opens uh, in two weeks on Broadway. Wow! And you know once. I finished this this go round. He finishes uh, his play. We're pretty much eighty percent done. Is it your public enemy record? <laughs> you know what's weird? We did about three songs to that level. This I don't want to get people's hopes up and be like, "Hey, return to form." But when did you lose form? Who would say that? <laughs> I know, but it's just I, I know that there's there's a sect of Roots fans that have a sentimental place in their heart for like the first six albums that yeah. a lot of our music just to dictates what the times were. We were in really depressing times in the, you know, <laughs> kind of in the last uh, five years or so. But I, I will say that this is probably the first time where I had fun. You can tell, like I have fun making this movie and this wasn't a thing where it's like, you know what? I want to make an Oscar caliber film and da da. When you start thinking on that level, then it shows. And there's three ways to make a, a record. There's heart, there's brain, and then there's ego. I'll give you a quick example. Michael Jackson made Off the Wall from his heart. Now, when he got his heart broken because Off the Wall wasn't nominated for the Grammys that he wanted to win instead of the Black Awards, he got his heart broken and vowed never again to get that level of heartbreaking. And then he uses his brain to make Thriller. So, okay, I'm going to craft something perfect, aesthetically perfect. Yes, we love Thriller, but it was also not quite off the wall. I will say that it is somewhat uh, a 
perfectly crafted, smart album. So that's Brain. But of course, it got out of control and it was too much. And I'm not saying he lost his brain or lost his mind, but that's the result. Like it created a monster. And the last thing left is Ego, which clearly bad is an Ego record. I've sold the most records. I've sold the most units. I'm the king. I'm the king. I'm the king. I'm the king. So, you know, when you create more from your heart, that's where that's where the magic starts. And so um, (laughs) that's where we're coming from. I love it. I know your phone's blowing up. You're late for another meeting, another call. Can you give me 60 seconds on Sly? Because we started with Sly. I want to know where you're at with that movie because it's going to be incredible. Yeah. You know, the magic about this Sly performance in this film for starters, this is the first time that black people are watching an intersectional group on stage. Yeah, um, I mean, there's Booker T and the MGs, but in the pop sense, they've never seen a woman play trumpet. The white drummer must be good if he's in a black band. There's women, there's men, there's, there's brothers, there's sisters, there's relationships, there's friends. But most importantly, they've never seen someone just wear their street clothes on stage. Yeah. Like, that was such... <laughs> yeah. A game change, like you had to wear a suit. And so they just never saw black psychedelica in the, on this level. And in the beginning, the adults in the room were sort of like, I don't know. Yeah. But they they won them over like in record time. So it's, it's one of the most magical performances ever. And really, it was just a, a sound check for Woodstock, which would happen 10 days later. So yeah, this is, this is a key moment in Sly's life. And your movie's coming? Yes, the Sly and the Family Stone documentary is indeed coming. Yes, absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that conversation, the latest right here with Questlove on the interview series. I think it's important to point out that when we had that conversation, Questlove hinted that it was going to be nominated for an Oscar, but it wasn't official. That literally happened a couple of days later. In any case, it's right there alongside all of the other amazing conversations. If you're new to this, by all means, dive in. You'll enjoy them. We're back again next week. Thanks again.